I'm going to sing a song this morning called Reckless Love. Here we go. Me. 
Well, the reason is that drunkenness was used in the day that Paul wrote Ephesians, and still to this day, as by, by pagans to influence them and induce them into some kind of a community with something they think is God. And so, if you Google, and I thought about uh, our, our Native Americans, and, and I've seen enough gun smoke and, and bonanza to know about, is it peyote? Peyote? Peyote. Thank you very much. We'll talk after church why you know what that is. <laughs> peyote, and, and people would, would take peyote and they would see all sorts of things when they took peyote. Uh, if you Google peyote, and I did this week, it, the first video that popped up was the people who take drugs to see God. And I bet you see all sorts of things with peyote. And so that's the contrast that is going on here. It's really not a social issue that Paul is talking about, uh, although it's certainly true. Before you're a Christian, you might get drunk, but when you become a Christian, you shouldn't. So it's true in a social element. But it's a theological issue that, that he's really focusing on. So in Paul's day, the pagans would just be drunken and they felt that it would re release some kind of religious experience or consciousness and they would see something. And I mean, when they got drunk, they got really drunk. And it would just induce all sorts of stupidity and they believed that it would elevate them to commune with gods. And so here, Paul is contrasting uh, that to what is happening with people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't do that. Do this. Uh, and it's a common contrast in Scripture. Look at Luke 1.15, for example. This is about John the Baptist. And in describing his life before he was born, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what it's talking about there for John is there needs to be no confusion as to what his motivation is. People never need to be able to say, you know, if John's been doing something he shouldn't be doing, they need to know that John is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he won't be influenced by on the inside by drinking, but on the inside by the Spirit of God. He won't be motivated by what alcohol does to his brain, but by what the Spirit of God does to his brain. Now, this sermon isn't on drinking, by the way. Uh, I'm against drunkenness, but is it okay for me to say if you have a glass of wine every now and then, I won't come to your house and beat you up? <laughs> is that okay for me to say that? Okay. Acts chapter 2. We see the men. I just wanted to slip that in there real fast. I, I don't drink, by the way, but I have a lot of friends that do, and as long as they do it under control... I still love them. All right, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues of the fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, 
Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds and power. We're going to talk about Acts 2 later, but this is in the reference to drunkenness. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and says, they're drunk. They are filled with some new kind of a wine that is making them do this. Early in the morning, and they're mad at the crowd that is on looking and not understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is mocking this group, saying they're drunk, don't pay any attention to what they're having to say. And Peter stands up in Acts 2, verses 14 and 15. Peter stands with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, and he said, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as some of you suppose. For it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And so there's the contrast again. Don't be filled with the world's old tricks. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So back to Ephesians 5. We've seen the contrast. Don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And you see the command in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, what Paul is saying is that this is something... Uh, that God demands of you. This is not an option. In the Greek language, this literally really says, be, be, be kept filled with the Spirit. Uh, this is a command for all believers. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion for a certain few that have the Holy Spirit and the rest that don't. The Lord doesn't say, now if you really want to be committed, then you need to do this. That's not what is happening here. This is the standard that God has established for all of us. The Lord has commanded us to be filled with the Spirit. So what does that mean? And boy, there's a lot of debate and a lot of confusion. And it comes and goes in cycles. I remember in the 70s, it was really a big deal about this. What's it mean? And there are a lot of people confused about this. Some people think that when you're filled with the Spirit, you get a divine zap. Then one day you're really trying to see God and zappo, something happens to you and then you are really better than a lot of other people. That's, in a nutshell, the confusion that some people have. Uh, some say that, well, then you have to speak in tongues if you're filled with the Spirit. We'll talk about that down the road. And others say you, you will act a certain way uh, and then they, they make it a litmus test and they look, have you been filled with the Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? And they have their definition of the zapped and the unzapped. That the good ones are zapped and the rest of them are not. And then, on the other hand, are there people who say that, well, they're kind of stoic about it and they say, yeah, the Holy Spirit is, is present and so forth and so on, but it has very little impact on it. And I want to stay away from them. And they're both wrong. This group is wrong. And this group is wrong. It's not a stoic kind of thing. It's not an ecstatic zap. It's neither one. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a very profound reality. And we all want to understand it the best we can as we are able. The truth is, every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. 
It is not a select few. It is every child of God who is a believer. Every one of us that profess to be Christians for that's the Holy Spirit. So from the moment you believe, the Holy Spirit is in your life. There's no such thing as being a Christian without the Holy Spirit. When you become a child of God, God's Spirit takes up residence in you. Let me read to you something Billy Graham wrote. And I thought it made a lot of sense. He wrote this about people saying that there's a second sapping or a baptism of the Holy Spirit later on when you get mature. And Billy Graham wrote this. He said, I must admit that at times I really wanted to believe this distinctive teaching. I too have wanted an experience, but I want every experience to be biblically based. The Bible, the biblical truth, it seems to me, is that we are baptized into the body of Christ by the spirit of conversion. This is the only spirit baptism. At this time, we can and should be filled with the Holy Spirit, and afterward be refilled, and even filled unto all fullness. As has often been said, one baptism but many feelings. Fillings. But I do not see from Scripture that this filling by the Holy Spirit constitutes a second baptism. Romans 8 puts it this way, beginning at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot speak please God. But to believers, you are not in the flesh. You are in the, what to say, Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to So the simple truth is, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But the problem is, you don't say, well, you know, I'm filled with the Spirit now, and I'm okay for the rest of my life. We have a battle daily, don't we? We have to keep being filled moment by moment as we seek God that He increases and we decrease like John the Baptist says. It's not a zapping that happens and, and five years later you need another dose and five years later you need another dose. My being filled with the Holy Spirit five minutes ago doesn't help me now. I have to always seek to be connected to God. My being filled with the Spirit tomorrow isn't any good today. It's a moment by moment. If I had one of the best illustrations I've heard, if I had a glove and I took the glove over here and set it on the keyboard at the piano and I stood here and I said, okay, glove, play it something. Is the glove going to do anything? If it did, we'd all get up and run out of here. It's not going to do anything. But if I would put my hand into the glove and went over there to the piano, something could happen. It wouldn't be very good. I only know one song always on my mind. Willie Nelson and Elvis Presley. That's the only song I can play on the piano. So that's likely what I would play with the glove, and you don't want to hear that. As a Christian, you're a glove. And you can sit there and sit there moaning and groaning, hoping to do something, but unless the Spirit of God is in you, you're not going to do anything. Everything you crank out without the Holy Spirit is done in the flesh and it's useless. 
and it reaps nothing. Here's a key. Whenever the Lord wants a job done, He always uses somebody full of the Holy Spirit. He always uses somebody that is totally yielded to Him. And now we're at the consequences, and we're going to talk about consequences, oh, maybe next week, maybe the week after. But let me show you a few of them. In Acts chapter chapter 6, in verse 5, they need some men for a special job. I want to read that about the qualifications, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 6. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the church is growing, but the people from different old ways are saying, you know, they're treating them better than us, and it was just a mess. And the twelve apostles called a meeting, and they said, we apostles spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. That doesn't mean food programs aren't important. They are. But the apostles had something special they needed to do, so they needed help. In verse 3, they said, So brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching. Everyone liked the idea. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaphania, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them, and there they laid their hands. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So you see the qualification that they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When God wants a man or a woman to do a great job, he wants that person in tune with his spirit. Later on in chapter 9, God needed a special servant. So we need to see the story of the conversion of Saul to Paul. And remember, Saul was blinded by the great light sent to the prophet Ananias. Verse 17 of Acts 9 puts it this way about their meeting. Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is living one moment at a time under the control of the Holy Spirit. That is all. It's yielding. It's emptying me of me so that God can fill what he wants. Later on, in Acts continues, the church is growing. Look at the description of Barnabas in chapter 11, verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. So when God wants somebody to do great things, they have the Spirit of God. So you say, well, that's the meaning of filling, but what's the means? How do I get filled? How do I become that beloved? One of the things you need to realize, if God commands it, and I believe God commands you in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. If God commands you to do it, doesn't that mean you have the resources to do it? 
doesn't it mean that? He's not going to command you something that you cannot do. He's not going to command you something that's elusive. And what we really have to do is empty ourselves. We surrender our will, our intellect, our body, our time, our talent, our treasure, everything to his control. It is the death itself, the crucifixion of the old self, the slaying of your own self-will. You remember the bracelets, and this has probably been 20 years ago, what would Jesus do? Remember that? I never, I'm not one much for jewelry, I, I like the principle that it reminds you to always be conscious of what the world is going on. And when we do that, when we're conscious that God is always there, the Spirit is always with us, well, we're different people. When we die to ourselves, He fills us up. When we empty ourselves, He lifts us up. And that's what we seek to do for years and years and years. So God bless you in your journey. Uh, we're going to continue talking about the consequences of a spirit-filled life in the days ahead in a biblical